Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then move my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes, baby. In a Mississippi minute. That's right. Today, oh yeah, is someone I call on when I'm on the other side of a show. Meaning if we're putting on a big concert and I'm inviting a bunch of friends to come in and jam... Keep us all sounding as thunderous as possible, and for sure organized as possible, is today's guest. The man can herd lions. I've seen it. He is the co-founder of Resource Entertainment Group, REG, in Memphis, Tennessee. But his roots are Delta, and Clarksdale to be more specific, where the family farm is still kept working God's soul, still to this day by his brother. He also is the co-owner of Ground Zero Blues Club in downtown Clarksdale with our friends Morgan Freeman and Bill Luckett. So let's don't waste another second of a Mississippi Minute. Say hello to my pal, Howard Stovall. Hey, Howard. Howdy, Steve. You know, this is uh, something that we've, we've been talking about for a while. You've been enduring uh, cancer. And uh, yeah, I want to talk about it first and get it, out, get it out of the way. But it is important. It's become a part of your life that you've had to uh, take on. Uh, I was very lucky in that I had esophageal cancer, and I found it really early. Just, you know, didn't feel good one night, and in unexpected fashion, actually did something about it and went and saw a doctor and went from dove hunting on a Saturday to getting a cancer diagnosis the next Friday. Um, and it was terrifying. And we ended up uh, getting on with the team at MD Anderson that is doing some groundbreaking stuff in the type of cancer um, that I had. And, uh, and Steve, I'll tell you, I will, I will cheerlead those guys to the end of my days because literally last Sunday, eight weeks and two days after major surgery, basically to remove my entire esophagus, mm. I got out of the tennis court, played a competitive match, and won it. Wow. And I had to call my doctor and say, I, I, this is where I'd hoped to be a year after surgery and to be here two months after um, is it, just is nothing short of miraculous. And I, I credit uh, all my friends who uh, have all had me on prayer list and in their minds, and I, and I appreciate every shred of that. And I thank God and I thank Indy Anderson for getting me where I am. But um, I, I'll tell you, you know, it, it's a scary thing. There are high mortality rates, and these guys have just made me a poster child for what can happen when things go right. So I feel incredibly blessed. As you know, I've you know, threaded the needle 
with uh, mm-hmm. with my festivals and other gigs and, and you and, and, and the whole crew down in Greenville were so understanding on that project. I, I had a lot of people help me in a lot of ways to get through it, but we're on the backside of it now, man, and I'm, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. All right, Howard, we're going to talk about growing up in Clarksdale. You and I didn't know each other. I used to spend weekends there, obviously, and uh, and that's the REG phone ringing because it rings off the wall. But but Howard, take me back growing up as a kid, and was farming ever a thought for your, uh, you know, after college days, and and really taking that on, or or did you always have this music bug? Well, kind of no to either. I mean, my dad was admiral. He was like, please find another way to make a living other than yeah. farming, <laughs> uh, which is why he sent both my brother and me to. Chicago and New York to kind of work in the futures markets and to learn about that and, and what we learned there still continues to be you know valuable to this day. Um, but you know there was a time when Dad's health first started to to kind of fail uh, when I moved back to Mississippi uh, and instead of working on the farm side at that time um, we were involved with H and H Pump and Dredge Company in Clarksdale, which was manufacturing uh, fabricated steel pumps and dredges and I went and worked for that company. Because Dad, although he needed some help, didn't really feel like he needed help on the farm. It was only later, after I'd kind of moved to Memphis, uh, when his health took another step down and my brother moved back, that that transition was made. And by that time, you know, I was off in a different direction. And uh, and so it kind of fell to my brother to, to assume that. Um, but, you know, the, it, it's interesting that how much land means to my identity. Mm-hmm. And that place means to my identity. I've, I have friends and relatives who are real estate people that buy and sell land as a commodity. And, you know, to me, it just it, it, it's not that. It's something that we've had in our family for 150 years. And wow. it's something that, you know, you're a, you're a custodian of and a steward of. But the idea of, of selling it is just sort of... You know, we're we're opposed to that just because it's in our DNA, and it's just a different way of looking at things. So I feel like not only are my roots in the Delta, but my obligations are in the Delta. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy to say that my wife and I are in a place professionally where we're going to be spending more time down there, and and we're really reengaging in Clarksdale and loving the people and loving what's happening, loving the energy, which of course is coming a lot from a music root, which of course hits my other my other bit. Um, but the music thing, you know, that, that kind of came late. That came later. That blows my mind because I kept thinking, okay, Howard's the guy in college is booking the bands, you know, that's running the show. I, I, I mean, I felt like you just went from that on to what you're doing now. Where did REG, the concept, come from? You know, fr- what, from its true origin, looking back. So there had to be a beginning thing where you were doing something and then then actually opening your doors to big business. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It was kind of a, a couple of stages. Um, you know, I'd always played music. I, You know, I was a band geek in high school. I always say I started my music career at the bottom because I started on tuba. Um, <laughs> but I played, you know, played instruments and learned how to play other instruments. And when I got to college, I, I actually got real serious for a year and played in the Yale Jazz Band and the Yale Concert Band and the marching band really, you know, dove into it. But it wasn't until I moved to Chicago and actually met, uh, oddly enough, for business reasons, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top. And he was so caught up in the blues history of our area, and especially the history of Stovall Plantation, 
which is you and I know, Muddy Waters grew up on our farm mm-hmm. and, and worked for my grandfather before he left for Chicago. Which is crazy. And when here I'm sitting with a childhood rock and roll idol of mine, and he looks at me and says, man, I'm just blown away that you grew up on Stovall Plantation. And it just told me that there was a real, you know, there was something here I needed to pay more attention to. And so I really started learning about the blues heritage of our area and about that particular bit of music. And then when I came back to Mississippi, the first thing I did was try to dive into a local blues scene. And Jim O'Neill was in Clarksdale there, who founded Living Blues Magazine and started the Sunflower River Blues Festival. And I ended up getting in with a bunch of guys that uh, became the Stone Gas Band. We still play together. Um, And I just picked up keyboard because that's what they needed. Um, And I started getting into more performance and production starting with the Blues Festival. And then after that, after a stint at Harris Casinos, where I learned that the kind of corporate cubicle culture probably wasn't the way I needed to go, um, I started work at the Blues Foundation. And the Blues Foundation produced the National Blues Awards and a Lifetime Achievement Award in Los Angeles, Blues Hall of Fame Awards. We really were very much a production company. And for my seven years there, I learned stage production, TV, artist management, all the things that it takes to put together a multi-act show. And when I decided to re-enter the, pro- the for-profit world from the non-profit world, I got together with a buddy of mine. At that time in Memphis, it was the 50th anniversary of rock and roll. FedEx Forum was opening. Right. Fun Studio was about to have a big 50th celebration. And we felt like the time was right to start a new booking agency and entertainment company and uh, he and I both had experience in sort of headline talent buying and dealing with bigger acts, but not really with the regional party bands that we knew we would need to sort of keep the lights on between big projects. And mm. so we brought in a couple of other friends who were more adept in that area. We started Resource Entertainment. And now, you know, 15 years later, um, two of those partners have moved on to other things, and they're two of the original partners here. Um, I kind of concentrate on our side of the business, Steve, you know, the, the headline stuff, the festival stuff, right. the corporate stuff. And my partner, Mike, is the band guy. And he books a thousand gigs a year from weddings to casinos to <laughs> galas to whatever. And so it's a really good balance. And uh, and it has been, uh, you know, a very, very exciting career. Uh, as you know, we'll never be the richest guys in the world, but really it's a lot of fun to wake up in the morning and see what the day holds. Oh, we're rich. We're very rich. I'm with my man Howard Stovall, coming to you from the Keep Mississippi Beautiful studio. Co-founder, REG Resource Entertainment Group, Memphis, Tennessee. Clarkstone native. You're in a Mississippi minute. He knows all about it. We're going to be right back. Alexa's part of your life, you've got one more way to access Super Talk. Super Talk Mississippi is now available on Amazon Alexa devices. Once enabled, just say Alexa Play Super Talk Mississippi at any time and start listening. It's that easy. Just one more way to stay informed and connected with your state. Learn more at supertalk.fm slash Alexa. 
Super Talk Mississippi. Super Talk Mississippi. Now available on Amazon Alexa devices. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Hey, coming to you from the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studios. I'm Steve Azar. You're in a Mississippi Minute. I'm with my man Howard Stovall, cancer survivor. He's 1-0 and after in tennis. He's taking the boys down. I love that. I love it. That You know, that excites me. I met you uh, doing some shows, and I remember going to tell my brother Joe, Joe, who's that guy that's running everything? I love him. <laughs> and he goes, that's Howard Stovall. He goes, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody so a perfectionist. I mean, he's like on it. I mean, like we were so impressed. And then I saw you again when I moved back, and I go, that's that guy again. And once again, everything was running like, and I think there was a day of st- a little bit, we could have had some stress, and you just took care of it so easily. Um, and I, I'm going to give credit to your farming background, because having partners as farmers, you and I both know that's another level. But, but uh, it's just you don't procrastinate. You overcome. You improvise. You do it. You adapt to a situation. You just do it. <laughs> so, yeah. but but I do remember things always running so smoothly with you and getting to work with you for so many years since then. Moving back, it's it's just it's just become synonymous with you. I just expect it. You know, um, is you talk about morale first of all in Clarksdale. You know, I'm in Greenville. We're talking Cleveland, Indianola, Greenwood. We can go on and on. And our Delta Roots, Vicksburg. We talk about towns. are all trying to. Re- to do some revitalization festivals first of all it creates uh morale morale turns into a lot of stuff it may not turn it may not be like this feel like it's an economic impact but i think it turns into it because it it provides hope but the truth is it does make an economic impact when you do it right talk about that and you've what it the importance to you especially with clarksdale hit the nail on the head, Steve. There, there are two great aspects, and, and I'll say that the, the kind of uh, your self-opinion of, uh, of, of what you think of the place you are, I mean, obviously we always seem to run down our own backyard, and, and you can extend that to cities as large as Memphis, where there just seems to be this sort of municipal inferiority complex, but if you can start to engage and get people really excited about what they have in their town, uh, it, it ripples all the way through. And in Clarksdale, back in the early 90s, you know, we were standing on soapboxes and really proselytizing about blues mm-hmm. and the asset, the civic asset that, that, was, that it is blues. And we kept telling people who really didn't seem to be very interested in it, you don't have to be really interested in blues. You can just be interested in the green that can come from the blues. And, you know, Bill Luckett was not a guy who knew about blues until he and I started talking about blues. And, you know, his excitement about that uh, ends up percolating through his friendship with Morgan and ultimately ends up with all three of us going in together into Ground Zero because we felt an obligation to make sure that there was blues happening in Clarksdale when these people from Iceland or Germany or Japan showed up in town. I mean, people would come in and then either have a a transformative musical experience at Reds or the Blue Diamond Lounge or the Big Top Lounge, all the little juke joints of the river mouth that were happening back then, or nothing would be happening to miss it entirely. And we wanted to make sure that miss it entirely moment never happened. Um, and, and what's happened in Clarksdale is now it's amazing to see how embedded in the fabric of the town the idea that blues is a good thing is. And that's both in the black and white communities. There was a lot of church resistance to blues. There was, uh, you know, there were all the resistances you could line up 
mm-hmm. against this sort of juke joint art form. And now it's an economic driver. And it is part of the identity. And more importantly, it's part of the pride. Um, right. and, and the pride is a good thing, but the economics are the real thing. And I can remember back in the days of, of talking about this. You know, money that comes into the economy from tourists rolls over in that economy six times. I mean, a dollar that comes in from somebody visiting it turns out and be worth about $6 in the local economy. And so when you start stringing together events that bring a couple thousand people into town and sell some hotel rooms and sell some meals and sell some merch, um, the ripple effect through that goes all the way to parts of the the economic engine that really don't have anything directly to do with tourism or music. It's just, it's like having a small factory in town producing revenue for the town. It's, It's just coming from outside, and that's the most valuable injection you can have is that sort of outside money. And you can really see the impact in Clarksdale where there just is a little buzz and energy that is there every day. And there, and that has attracted people from out of town to come in to make investments. And it's all this sort of feel-good stuff that we kept telling people, this is fun, this is exciting. Well, now people have gotten the message, and it's it's making a difference. And it's still fun and exciting, and people still come, and they love it. it and, and most importantly, it's authentic and it's organic. What's been the challenges for you guys since opening Ground Zero? You know, I can remember sitting with Bill Luckett when we were first talking about it, and I was sketching on the back of a napkin. I said, Bill, it looks to me like we've got to sell one beer a month to two-thirds of the people in town. That seems like kind of a daunting task to to break even. And uh, i got to say, you know, for a bunch of guys that got together that didn't have any club experience, it was a good thing that Morgan was making a lot of movies in those early years because we needed him to keep the place going. (laughs) Um, it is sometimes difficult to take your passion and make the profit loss statement work. Right. And passion is a great motivator and it can keep you going for a long time. But ultimately, if the P&L doesn't run right, the passion will wane. And I'm happy to say that we have, uh, we brought in a new partner, Eric Meyer from Portland, Oregon, who is a really, really great guy who is part of that Clarksdale Energy who has been attractive to Clarksdale and Ground Zero. From our standpoint, also, he has some good tactical operations experience on clubs, and that has helped us start to get a handle on just what our operating margin should be. Just read the business side of it. We've operated for over 15 years on passion and energy and hope, and now the numbers are finally kind of getting in line where I think we can make it another 20 years. Wow, Um, that's good news. But it's, you know, and, and it's wonderful that, it has this wonderful reputation. It has a global audience. Uh, but in the end of the end of the day, it's a it's a bar in a small town that's that's got a small local audience that we we got to keep happy. Right. And, uh, and the tourists are great, but there are not a lot of them around in mid February. So, um, so we have to you know we, we we ultimately have to strike the balance between making the tourists happy and making the locals happy. And that's uh, and that sometimes can be can be tough. It's just tough running a business in a small town. Period. Right, right. No, no, I get it. We're talking to Howard Stovall. The phone's ringing off the wall back at REG. Uh, yeah, sorry if, about that. No, I love that. I want to hear the phone ringing off the wall. It's part of the show. Uh, the the uh, I think about all that you guys do over there. I want to talk about REG for, uh, for a second longer before we go into the break. Um, you're so full service and it seems like y'all have your niche so it's not like you're competing against live nation and and aeg putting acts in the in the fedex forum 
No, but but there's there's so much more a, a need for talent. Actually, way more need, you know, on the daily basis. And you talk casinos. Your time now. Your, your time with Harris, right? Um, mm-hmm. Take me there. What do you What do you guys do with Harris? Well, Caesars now. Um, All right, Caesars we put, now. You know, we put at least one band a day into Horseshoe Casino. Um, but again, we don't do their headline booking. They've got a, a national contract with a big outfit out of Austin, Texas does that but we do every special event we do every lounge band we do new year's eve we do all that stuff for them and so typically they as many of our clients do come to us and say we got this thing we need some music tell us what we need here's our budget and then we go all right well here's some ideas here's where we go and we do the same thing you know the same the same thing for a lot of regional festivals around mississippi and, and, and steve it's a you know, it's a matter of great pride when we can take a regional festival in a smaller town with a limited budget and manage to get them a good act that resonates well with their audience, that makes them look good, that, that, that keeps their festival exciting and makes the most of the budget that they have. Right. And, and we've been lucky enough to be involved with some great people, a lot of whom you know, through, throughout Mississippi that have connected us with a lot of these regional events. And it's, really nice to be able to take very, again, passionate people who don't necessarily exist in the professional world of entertainment, procurement, and presentation, and to say, okay, you guys want to get this done, boom, here it is. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is just no more than we've got this much money and we want to do this, what do we need? And, you know, and we connect it up. We're talking to Howard Stovall co-founder of resource entertainment group reg in memphis tennessee if you got something that you want to put on an event and you want it run right he's the guy you call i can promise you that look we get to play, you get to play dj you know all about the birthplace of american music you can live over the state line all you want i'm gonna let you play dj i'm gonna make it very difficult because i know you like uh, both these acts would you like to hear a little bit of muddy waters <clears throat> or the north mississippi all-stars well, there's a pretty much a direct line between the two if you take a little right-hand turn at R.L. Burnside. So, oh, um, are you throwing me a curveball? If you think about Muddy Waters and his music in the context of the fact that nothing like it had ever gone before it, yeah. and that it was completely new, completely different, and you know, globally changing in terms of the music you listen to today, with all respect to Luther and Cody, who I love dearly and you do too, i got to go with Muddy. It had no choice to be. It had it. It was influenced by the grace of God. <laughs> so yep. I agree. Muddy waters. It is. We're rolling together, you and me, right here from the Keep Mississippi beautiful studios. Talking to Howard Stovall. You're in a Mississippi Ooh, minute. Yeah. We'll be right back. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. We're live. 
Keith, Mississippi Beautiful Studios. I'm Steve Azar. We are partaking in a Mississippi Minute with my buddy Howard Stovall, REG, Resource Entertainment Group, Memphis, Tennessee. But his soul and heart still remain in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, he's just, he's an extremely organized guy. Howard, were you always <laughs> like that as a kid? I mean, is this something that you've sort of figured out along the way, or were you the guy, that guy? You know, I I think I went through my times of being, you know, wild and crazy and yelling and screaming and finally probably did enough of it to realize that wasn't the way to go. So you probably just caught me at the right phase <laughs> <laughs> after I'd gone through the bad one. Um, but, you know, I, you know, doing doing what I do is, I mean, it's just all about communication and anticipation. And when I teach people, you know, how to, how do you manage a complex event? A lot of it is sitting back and saying, what are the 100 things that can go wrong? And how can I prepare myself in advance for that? And I tell people that are just getting into festival production or just outdoor production, you know, you'll think of 100 things that go wrong, and hopefully none of them happen. But if one of the 100 happens and you're prepared because you thought about it, uh, then life gets a lot easier. So it's, it's, it's always easy to do a show when everything goes right. But I go back to that, that first festival you and I did in Greenville at Mighty Mississippi, mm-hmm. and here we crank up on a Saturday, and we get five inches of rain yeah. on Saturday night. And we had an act on stage at noon Sunday as scheduled because that's what we were there to do. And, you know, you plow through it. You, you safety first. You know, uh, I will never forget you and Dina Carter being on stage and, yeah, we had we had three of those inches of rain. Stage. We took home Dina and I, three inches yeah. we, we were wearing, <laughs> <laughs> and I think Cedric Burnside was wearing an, at least an inch and a half. <laughs> well, the next time I saw the North Mississippi All Stars a couple of years later, and they said, "Do you know how much of our gear was mildewed after that show?" I mean, all their stuff just got soaked. That's um, crazy. But that was you know that was that hundred year flood night, yeah. and we got through it. Yeah, I love the weather report that week. It was perfect. No, not a cloud in the sky. All great. Came home to change to get clothes and and all that. And then I, I came back outside, and all of a sudden I started looking at the sky, and the winds were picking up. And I said, "Uh oh." <laughs> mm-hmm. I love, and I love that night. I'll never forget it because while we were playing, well, first of all, Cedric said, "I'm going on," and I went, "My kind of man." And then I looked at yeah. Dina when we were up there, and y'all with lightning, we could hear the we could hear the lightning couldn't just see it we could hear it feel it and i thought this was it right this is it we're done and we were trying to get off stage and i looked at dina (laughs) and you're trying to get us off the stage and she just looks at me and winks and starts singing another course of strawberry wine and i went okay that's it and then i remember looking down at my boots to to show you how much rain was happening a stage is flat there's nothing holding water like a like there's no like inch railing or two inch railing or whatever. So it's just flat and it falls off like an infinity pool, right? And I my boots I couldn't see the top of them. So it was coming down so hard it was holding. <laughs> and my Wawa pedals were soaked, guitars were soaked. I I understand what they what Luther and Cody were saying that uh, I still smell the mildew. We're talking to Howard Stovall. That is what you go through. Howard, let's talk about preserving. Uh, the muddy waters uh, on your on your property was it a, what is was it his house? Yeah, you know, here's the um, muddy waters grew up in you know what what we all know is kind of a standard sharecropper cabin on our farm, and it was you know out you know back in the day those houses were, were, were scattered about. They weren't kind of on one road. They were out kind of on forty acre plots, and then as things 
became more efficient. Those on our farm, we moved the houses to one spot along the road, and so the house that Muddy grew up in was not in its original location, but we knew which one it was because the old guys on the farm had told us, yeah, man, that's the one that, that Muddy grew up in. Mm-hmm. So we always knew that was his house. And, and all these houses were kind of, people weren't living in them, and you know, we were, we were kind of starting to tear them down and replace them with modern housing. And you know, I told my dad, I was like, look, don't tear this one down. This, is, you know, this was Muddy Warner's house. He said, okay, well, I mean, it doesn't matter to us. We'll, we'll leave it standing. And then a few years later, as we're saying, you know, this thing's kind of deteriorating. A tornado came through, and it just blew the house apart. And what we discovered was that, you know, in that four-room floor plan, that, you know, the front right room was actually a pre-Civil War long cabin that had been built out of axe-hewn cypress planks that were, you know, 14 inches wide and 4 inches deep and stacked up like Lincoln logs. And, and that thing, the, the tornado could not do anything to that. Wow. And so we had this now kind of one-room structure left that was sort of open to the elements. And it was at that time that Billy Gibbons came down and ZZ Top first got involved with the Delta Blues Museum. And he came out to our farm literally the day after the tornado when there were, you know, there was just pieces of that structure sort of lying around and he grabbed some of the uh, some of the wood that had been blown apart and he created the muddy wood guitar which is in the delta blues museum now and and um made a series of them and and had you know so that's when he had sort of made, made his pilgrimage to, to muddy's house and so we were just kind of maintaining it as a as an attraction just because people would come out and see it but the floor was starting to rot because there wasn't a roof on it right i put up kind of chicken wire over the doorways and said, don't come in here, it's dangerous. And I was standing there with a friend of mine from Memphis, a guy named Jim Dewarowitz, who's a music memorabilia guy, great fella. And he was doing a lot of work with Isaac Tiger at the House of Blues at the time. And he and I literally were sitting there going, what in the world can we do to this thing? It's just, it's an accident waiting to happen. And we went to Isaac. And Isaac and the House of Blues were about to get heavily involved in the Atlanta Olympics. And Isaac struck a deal with us to take the cabin for five years. And the idea was they would come and dismantle it and then stabilize the wood, use them maybe injected polymers, they did all kinds of high-dollar stuff. And then to take this thing on the road as an exhibit come on. and to return it to us in five years. And, and in the meantime, they were given, I think they were given 20 grand a year to the nonprofit of our choice. We did the Sunflower the Blues Festival for a while. We did the Blues Foundation for a while. And let me tell you, it was not without rancor, um, my, my dear friend, Panny Mayfield, who I love to death, who is, as you probably know, a fabulous photographer in Park right. Hill. She has oh, yeah. a great book of photography out that everybody needs to own. Panny was just, I mean, she was livid. She just thought we were stealing the heritage. <laughs> and I mean, it's the only time Panny and I have ever gotten cross with said, whoa, was she mad at me. And because everybody <laughs> saw this thing going away. I saw it coming back. Right. Um, just not for a while. And so the House of Blues took it. They put it up at the Olympics. They put it up at the Chicago Blues Fest. Then they realized how much it cost to put this thing up and take it down, and they just put it in a warehouse for three years. And at the end of the five-year period, they said, hey, you got this thing, what do you want? And so we went to the Delta Blues Museum and said, look, this thing needs to be here. And that's when Shelley and the Delta Blues Museum went out and got a grant, got a million-dollar grant, and built that additional wing onto the museum to house the Muddy Waters cabin. So, you know, from Jim and me standing there going, what in the world can we do with this thing? Uh, to this really weird deal that never could have been done at another time um, because House of Blues at that time was a wash in money and could take on a passion project like that. And now, you know, it's the centerpiece of the museum and a, and a great tourist draw. And, you know, it happened with a couple of guys standing around going, how, how are we going to make this thing better? 
and if you want to rank things that we've done in life that we're proud of, that I mean that that may come after surviving cancer, but it's a pretty close second. Wow! <laughs> no, no, I know we're talking to Howard Stovall. Howard, as, okay, you're a musician. We talked about going, you know, going into the break. You talked about how it was his own thing, and it was. Where do you think? Do you think church? When I was in college, I took a course called Structure of the New York Mambo, which was one of the. It was you know, it was a guaranteed A. And a lot of people took it just because they could get an A. And I took it and learned about the West African origins of what of what we call blues from a fascinating guy who I contacted years after I graduated and said, I'm the only person to tell you this. But I was running the Blues Foundation. I said, I, I, I draw on what I learned in your class every day. And there are literally the, the tonalities of blues stem directly from tonalities that are found in indigenous West African music. The bending of the string on a on a European guitar was a was a, a a an attempt to find those notes between the notes that were part of African tonalities that were not part of European tonalities. So what we think of that blues seven or that that augmented third uh, really have their roots in generations and generations of African music. And so what you had were people that came to the United States that had these traditions and passed them down, and after a few generations, it it wasn't really known what the direct line was. It's just this is what we're going for. And so you had these guys in the 20s, 30s, and 40s when Sears started selling guitars and people could actually buy instruments. In those cardboard boxes. These instruments. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they're taking these instruments and they're trying to recreate those tonalities that they had done with their voices. And you got, you know, fiddle players. I mean, when, when, when Muddy was first recorded, he was playing with a group called the Sun Sims Four out of Farrell, Mississippi. And Sun Sims was a fiddle player. And, you know, with a fiddle not having frets, a little easier to get those between-the-note things, you know, on a fiddle than it would have been on, on a guitar. Right. But really what they were doing was, was mimicking tonalities that had their roots uh, hundreds, thousands of years before. And so when we think of those blues notes... The, they didn't just think of it in 1940. They, you know, it, it had been it had been there for a very long time. They just took what was available to them and adapted it and created what we call the you know the blues diatonic scale. Talking to Howard Stovall, you're in the Mississippi Minute from the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studio. We'll be right back. Easier than ever to hear Super Talk anywhere. Now you can get Super Talk Mississippi on Amazon Alexa devices. Just go to supertalk.fm slash Alexa to find out more. For news, politics, sports, and the good things happening in Mississippi, the conversation starts here. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Hey, coming to you from the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studios. I'm Steve Azar. You're in the Mississippi Minute. I'm with my man, Howard Stovall. We got to talk about some of the the good, good dirt uh, involving uh, putting on the Ray Charles 70th Mm -hmm. birthday, right? I got to know uh, the inside out on that event. Sounds like uh, something that was really cool to do. Uh, Take me there. The challenge was Ray. Um, 
you know, we were, it, it was in the context of a Lifetime Achievement Award for the Blues Foundation. And we wanted Ray to be the recipient. And, and on these things, you have to kind of work up the food chain. You know, you don't establish a Lifetime Achievement Award and give the first award to Ray Charles. Then you don't show up. Right. <laughs> so we had already been doing this three or four years. We'd given the award to John Lee Hooker. We'd given it to B.B. King. Um, and we had a great B.B. King uh, celebration. We hauled a barbecue rig from Memphis and set it up in the parking lot of the theater and cooked barbecue for two days before the show and fed everybody in the theater. But um, for Ray, we really we, we had to go through a back door we kind of went through his main audio engineer and finally got to Ray and said, look, we want to do this thing for you, but we're not going to do it the way most people do it, which is it'll honor you and we'll throw Britney Spears on stage and, you know, and a bunch of people you've got no connection to. We would like to throw you a party. And who would you like to perform at your party? And he came back, and this was a totally, this blew him away. And he said, well, Willie Nelson is my best friend. So I'd like Willie Nelson, okay. Ashford and Simpson, okay, killer. Um, Billy Preston, yeah, all right. Love it. And Diane Shure, the great blind jazz pianist. Right. And so we said, all right. And, and when you call even a Willie Nelson and said, hey, Ray Charles wants you to play his party, the answer is, okay, when and where? You know, because yeah. now the request didn't come in from me. It's coming from Ray. Right. So everybody said, okay, immediately. And Steve, I will tell you the one thing I so remember from that. I watched Billy Preston sound check. Will it go round in circles and nothing from nothing is nothing? I could have left then and gone back to Memphis and felt like the trip was worth it. He was so amazing. And then when he did his performance, he put on a pair of sunglasses and he did his Ray Charles impersonation. And wow. he had played with Ray for years. <laughs> and his, you know, it looked like Ray, but more importantly, it sounded like Ray because Ray. Was had tears running out of his face. He was laughing so hard. I mean, that's how much Billy Preston had. How Ray plays the guitar. I mean, he plays the piano down. Right. Is yours, Ray? Who can't see the fact that he's mimicking <laughs> him perfectly visually. All he can tell is he's mimicking him perfectly. Oh, Ray can music. see. He can see. He sees uh, through his other senses uh, incredibly yeah. more than we do, and it's just an amazing, amazing thing. I can, you know, nothing for nothing means nothing. You got to have some. I mean, come on. Isn't that right? Isn't that the, the or whatever? Yeah. I'm, am I close? Because that's close enough. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Leaves nothing. Yeah, I mean, that's brilliant. But you got to have something. Oh, my God. Um, it's just so but that good. Was, and that so was, good. And not only was that amazing, but after a couple months afterwards, I went back to Los Angeles for something else. And, and the engineer had told me, when you come back, I want you to come by Ray's studio. Um, because this, he said he had more fun at that event than any tribute that had ever been done for him. And I know he'd like to say thank you. And I went back to his studio. And I had a buddy of mine that at that time had a couple small record labels uh, in L.A. And I told him, I was staying with him. I said, hey, you want to go to Ray Charles' studio with me? He's like, are you kidding me? Of course I did. <laughs> so we drove there, and Ray came down and spent about 45 minutes with us, just hanging out in his control room, chatting, laughing, being funny, being cool. And he finally left, you know, and had to get back to, to stuff. And my buddy and I kind of were almost shell-shocked. And we walk, and we, we're acting cool, and, and we get and we walk out, and we... And we get in his car, and we get in the car and close the door, and we look at each other and literally just screamed, Oh, my God, can you believe it? We just hung out for an hour with Ray Charles. Uh, and we figured somewhere there was a security guard watching the security camera, watching us do that, thinking, Yep, got another one out there. Getting blown <laughs> away by being with Ray. But I love it. For us, music can become a business. It is a business. It's how we well, make yeah. our living. It has to be a business. But 
But when you get it, and you and I have seen this over, look at the last few years of people we put on stage, a Chris Stapleton or a Marin Morris or Lord knows an Ashley McBride, these people that you hear for the first time and you think, this is exciting. This is, and I would say, uh, you know, more so I think, you know, Chris was kind of a, a mind blower, and I still, every time I hear Ashley McBride, it still blows me away. But you hear that kind of something new coming on that reawakens that passion so that it's not just a business. That's when it's really Right, exciting. and especially when you're sort of finding it. I mean, it's a pretty cool thing. You're sort of ahead of the game, and it's like the last cheap gig they, you know, the last you know, inexpensive gig they play is was ours. I felt like that, you know, that was a – I love paying, you know, whatever we paid versus a half a million. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Well, I will tell you, you know, the, we booked the Revivalists, what, four years ago? And yeah. the last time I quoted them, they were exactly ten times what we paid for them. Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty good, aren't we? We're pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, you know, we've we've stumbled upon a few good ones. Well, we know we know good music and honest music when we see it because we've been around it for so long, and that's the true blessing to be able to admire something so great. And when you see it, you go like, whoa, whoa, whoa! It's not. There's no thinking to it. It's just, uh, you know, that is a beautiful thing, and and I'm ready to. I'm ready to partake for sure. We've been with Howard Stovall. You guys ever have any sort of musical festival? Uh, event need uh you can call me i'm, I'm his agent and uh and we'll go from there <laughs> you got to call him at reg resource entertainment group howard amen that you're healthy uh prayers will continue and thank you for all you do for the preservation of music and blues and uh, your true passion and compassion for it you are the best buddy well, man, it's always a pleasure to talk about music in Mississippi, Steve, and uh, there's probably nobody I'd rather do it with than you, so thank you for the opportunity, man. All right, have a great weekend, brother. I'll talk later. Do thank Bye-bye. I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.